Cognitive Rampage. I'm your host, Adam Lowry, as usual. My guest in the cave today is Dr. Bobby Hoffman. He's the Associate Professor in the School of Teaching and Learning and Leadership at the University of Central Florida, right here in Orlando at UCF. He's a graduate of UNLV in Las Vegas with a PhD in Educational Psychology. He joined uh, UCF uh, He after a 20-year career in human resources management and performance consulting, working with very successful companies. This guy worked with GE, NBC, KPMG, and the NBA, uh, and big global organizations. He teaches a variety of classes at the graduate level in motivation, learning, cognition, and intelligence. Dr. Bobby Hoffman is the author of Motivation for Learning and Performance. It's a book that features the latest scientific evidence from disciplines of psychology, education, neurology, business, and athletics. Uh, He designed it to inform readers uh, about how to diagnose, analyze, and performance challenges influenced by motivation and types of motivation. Uh, It differs because he writes... Not so much, um, you know, it differs from more like a theoretical oriented textbook, you know, that kind of you got to wade through a bunch of confusing jargon. Sometimes you got to reread it a lot. But what he tries to do is uh, use an outline of key principles of motivation using interviews and individuals across cultures and disciplines um, from all sorts, from MBA to writers to actresses and actors. Uh, all types, you know, but the uh, book is comprised of over about a thousand. It has been cited. I'm sorry, the book, his book, has been cited over about a thousand times, and used in tons of literature and lectures, etc. Everywhere, he takes a real authentic humanistic approach. Um, you know, with rich descriptive narratives developed through kind of extensive interviews. Those are the real people I was talking about. You know, he talks about the book on the podcast a lot, so I, I really don't want to get too much into it, uh, but definitely check out the book, Motivation for Learning and Performance. You can find it on Amazon, etc. You know, but the real goal uh, I think he was trying to get across was to provide a practical and applied and multidisciplinary resource for anyone interested in motivation and performance, like I was. Uh, he has published numerous scholarly articles and scientific journals in the field of educational psychology. He's offered over th- authored over 30 publications in the field of management and organizational development related to previous consulting practices like human resources, uh, etc. But he is the current line of research uh, that he's on now. He focuses mainly on motivation and cognitive efficiency. And he investigates the role of optimal cognition when considering the costs related to learning, such as working memory limitations and strategy use, etc. cetera. Uh, Dr. Bobby Hoffman is also the co-creator and former program director of UCF's highly coveted Applied Learning and Instruction Master's Program. He is also... American Educational Research Association 2016 Division C Co-Chair for Research and Motivation and Cognition. He was Program Co-Chair in 2011 for Division 15 of the American Psychological Association and serves on several journal editorial boards, including Contemporary Educational Psychology, Educational Psychology Review, and Educational Technology Research and Development. Whew! How's that for a resume in motivation and drive? I think that covers it. 
I really enjoyed uh, sitting uh, in the cave here and chatting with uh, Dr. Bobby Hoffman. Um, he has so much knowledge and a lot to say. We fit a lot in in about an hour and a half, but he will definitely be back on the show. Uh, we talk about all sorts of angles of motivation. We talk about the idea of learning styles and the, well, I'll let you listen about how we talk briefly about that. But we cover a lot about motivation, people's beliefs, uh, what may hinder you, uh, what we think, what are beliefs, what are thoughts. We go very, very uh, deep. We go broad, too. We go around the topic of motivation, uh, what that is, what that means. He shares a lot of information. You know, my goal this year, like I said, was to gain competence. And I got a lot of competence sitting with uh Doc, as I came to call him, um, before he left the cave. But uh, he was a great guy. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you enjoy. This is Dr. Bobby Hoffman. Live directly in the cave with us is the man, <clears throat> Dr. Bobby Hoffman. I'd give you a, a long intro, bro, but how no, you doing? You, you don't need to do that. People will figure me out in a few minutes. I'm doing good. I, I'm just uh, amazed that we live down the street from each other. <laughs> yeah, I found that. And, you know, researching some guests, you know, to have on and uh, some reading and studying that I do is, is how I came across you. And the fact that you were like, yeah, I'm down the street. I was like, oh, this is perfect. Yeah, we should do this all the time, I guess. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been doing this now. Uh, this is the first. We're starting the second season now of the Cognitive Rampage. But we've been going uh, for a while uh, pretty strong. We've had all kinds of guests. We do about two guests a week. So you mm -hmm. you did the homework on us, yeah, I'm sure. No, I, I know all about you, I think. At least your public profile. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. oh, man. Well, you all have a presence on the Internet, some more favorable than others, right? Yeah, <laughs> you could say that, man. I tell you, though, I am quite transparent, man. There's there's generally not a thing that uh, it goes on in the cave that we don't put out there. This right. isn't Vegas in here the way I see it. Well, sometimes maybe. Well, that's funny. You know, actually, I went to uh, did my Ph.D. in Vegas, but I, I totally agree with that perspective on life. Uh, the first thing I do when I start a new class with my students is give them my life story and tell them everything from uh, who I'm dating to uh, what I like to eat and what I do when I'm not teaching. And that kind of takes a lot of the uh, background noise away so they don't have to wonder, well, what's he really like? You know, like... Uh, you know, what does he do? <laughs> yeah, well, so you kind of kill him. If you would, for the listeners, man, kind of, you know, I'd give you an intro and a bio, which I'll do anyway, man. But, you know, introducing yourself and, and is probably the best place to, to start for everybody watching or listening. Sure. Uh, I am an associate pre professor of educational psychology at the University of Central Florida. Any views that I express are all my own, <laughs> not part of the university. But I've been there for about uh, 10 years, and I teach courses in learning theory assessment, cognition, uh, human intelligence, and my specialization is motivation and the efficiency of thinking. Uh, before I joined UCF, uh, I went to, uh, did my PhD in UNLV, of all places. Rebel. Uh, actually, yeah, I'm a rebel. Rebel man. <laughs> now, now, that, that, now, UNLV is a top-ranked psychology school, right? Yeah. You, at the time I graduated, uh, the program that I graduated from was 19th in the country. And I, I, and I was I was I was very founded by some very prominent scholars, some of the best people in the business. Who sticks out, man? 
Well, my uh, mentor's guy by the name of Greg Shaw, who uh, he's generally ranked like in the top 20 in the world. And uh, another mentor of mine was Gail Sinatra, who is actually, I think you probably want to talk about some of her work because she focuses on how beliefs change and how you can persuade people from holding um, misconceptions. And there's a lot of that going on, as we'll get, probably get to later. So anyway, before uh, UNLV, I actually changed careers. I was a business guy for uh, 22 years, had my own consulting business in human resources, and worked for some of the largest companies in the world, people like uh, NBC, uh, the MBA, big five accounting firms, global uh, pharmaceutical firms. But I got kind of tired with that after 20 years. So I went back to school, and now I'm in academia, and they spend a lot of time writing. So I think you know about that, too. <laughs> yeah, the, the the writing, man, all of it really interests me. The whole background and everything about what you do and what you did, uh, you know, interests me from the beginning. Because truthfully, I'm here, honestly, to get competent. That's what I'm trying to do. People that yeah. I try to have on, I'm like, you know, feed me, Seymour. You know, that's a throwback to the 90s, if anybody. Na- name that movie, Steve. <laughs> oh. Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, but, you know, just feeding me the competence, you know, because, you know, uh, obviously mm-hmm. you, you see that I'm about, you know, the psychology of belief. And, you know, I'm just into the research about the science behind motivation right. and belief. And that's what I, you know, that's where I want to, mm-hmm. you know, dig as much out of you as I can, you know. Well, I, I appreciate that perspective, Adam, because uh, not everybody's really open to, we'll say, diverse knowledge. A lot of people are very comfortable with the beliefs that they have. And, you know, and technically we'd call that an absolutist belief where you think there's one way of doing everything. Maybe it's religious dogma. Maybe it's how you approach your, a uh, prospective partner at a bar. Or, or maybe it's like what kind of rice you buy. But a lot of people are very myopic and they, they don't necessarily consider alternative frameworks and perspectives. So. That's a good thing that we like to see in learners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. You referred to people as learners. I love that idea. In my book, I refer to the absolute belief as the concrete belief. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah uh, we tend to get hung up on terminology and stuff, but we don't want to have any uh, debates over language. We know what we're talking about. It's definitely the same thing. Damn right. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah. <And> what, <laughs> yeah. You want to? What do you, you want to know that? I guess maybe the most interesting thing about me personally is the fact that I gave up a really profitable business That's where I was going to go. And What made you go, you know what, I don't want to work with the MBA <laughs> and all of this money and all of this stuff, and I want to go teach? Well, I think when you get to a certain point in your life, and I don't think, Steve, or are you, are you there yet? But I was cruising towards 50. I was like 44, 45, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, how many years left do I have that I can be fully functioning and enjoying my life? And for me, it was a very, very, uh, we'll say, selfish and almost a sort of capitalistic decision because I didn't want to waste my time commuting and doing what I thought was very low-value work mm-hmm. because once you're into consulting and, and like any other field, when things become automatic to you, and when things become automatic – you tend not to really get a whole lot of intellectual growth. You may may enjoy it from the financial perspective or the personal perspective, but if you're going into work every day and you're bored, what's going to happen? You're going to begin to withdraw from that 
task or that environment, whatever it is, because boredom is a very negative emotion. So I was definitely experiencing that, and I always had high aspirations for myself and wanted to get a, a Ph.D., so I had a, I had a few good years. Um, and, but that lifestyle, too, is taxing. You know, my, my, Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you live on a plane most of the time, yeah. don't you? Yeah, I was traveling all the time. It was a good period of time, like four or five years when I was away at least every other week. So, yeah, I get, I get tired of that. And, and if you think if you're sitting in traffic and you're saying, like, you know, what the hell am I doing here? Like, is this how I want to spend my life? I don't care how much money I'm making. It doesn't matter if you have enough for your, your basic, uh, you can pay your bills and stuff. So it was, it was really a time consideration. Time consideration combined with the uh, intellectual challenge. And boy, was I naive. <laughs> no, I really was. My conception of doing a PhD wa was that you, you would be working all the time. You learn a lot of new things. But the whole research paradigm for me was something that I didn't really consider. I didn't know, even at 46, so this says to you, you know, age is not a qualifier for knowledge. But at 46, I didn't really have the expectation that being a professor involved actually growing the field and extending knowledge as opposed to just going in a classroom and teaching and you know, having your summers off. Yeah, I mean, you require, <laughs> you're required to feed it, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you, well, it depends on the type of university you go to, but uh, most uh, Tier 1 universities like UCF, you have to be productive. The objective of hiring you from the university's perspective is you're going to self-fund yourself because based upon your reputation, you will either attract students or you'll, you'll be able to get research dollars from the government. So they, they want you out there. You need your name out there. And the, the better your reputation internationally, the better the higher it is for university. But going, going to school and being in the business world, like, I had no clue about that stuff. Yeah, what would, what's the separation from the two is, what would you say is the biggest difference? Uh, the biggest difference, <laughs> this may be uh, where I should reiterate, these views are not <laughs> those of my employer. The, the culture of academia is much, much different from the corporate culture. Corporate culture says we're interested in improvement, but a lot of times that improvement is intuitive and based upon the organizational hierarchy, People uh, tend to leverage decisions through power. Yeah, pretty which, much. You know, that's the way the world works. Yeah, it's an email or else, right? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of CYA. Should I? I yeah. don't know. No, how, you can curse uh, like a motherfucker, <laughs> baby. You are the the, the beauty. So you, you've got that. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, you got that whole cover your ass stuff in the corporate world, but it's for a different reason in academia. In academia, it's almost a self-protective culture where you have a really good deal. If you are a professor at a large university, you're, you've got the job you want. You're making, in many cases, six figures, and you work when you want on what you want to work with who you want to work. And if for some reason you don't feel like working for a couple of weeks beyond teaching your classes, that's okay. So and especially when they get tenure, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, which is becoming less and less. They're uh, talking frequent. about doing away with this, right? Yeah. Well, a lot of universities are, and that, that's that's a whole can of worms because. All right, let's not go there. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, I'm. You're better off talking to me about something else. But <laughs> to answer your question, the culture in academia doesn't necessarily inspire growth and.
creativity, even though on the perception may be that way, yeah. there's a lot of tradition and there's a lot of acceptance of mediocrity. And for some people, like myself, that's a, that's a very frustrating thing because you ask me, you know, why did you make this transition? Well, the, the second reason I made it besides lifestyle is because I felt like I had a lot of experiences I could share with other people. So... I didn't get all this gray hair for nothing. <laughs> well, dude, a, <laughs> you don't put tw- you don't put twenty years in, in human resources right, and not yeah. get to know people. Right, exactly. So I felt from a a nurturing and an altruistic perspective that if I went into teaching, I would feel like I was actually doing something as opposed to sitting in a desk job and doing what I had done for twenty years. It just wasn't it wasn't worth going into the office even though i was making uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars every year so (laughs) how long much more happy now much more how long did that process or exchange take was it i mean did you commit into school and slowly work your way that way or was it abrupt change no it was it was totally abrupt uh i saw the handwriting on my wall with some of my clients and this was like in uh, 2000 when all the dot-com companies were blowing up, and I had done a, a lot of work with those as well, a lot of startups, like uh, when CNBC was just getting off the ground. To, no kidding. So, man, yeah. you, so you've <laughs> seen a lot, man, yeah. a lot of industries. Yeah. I mean, in human resources, now, did you staff for all kinds? I did staffing, but I did a lot of organizational development, too, performance management, getting people to you know, toe the line and do what they were supposed to do and develop their own careers. So it wasn't from a... I don't know, discipline perspective, it wasn't that radical of a change. But as I said, from a cultural perspective, it really was. And uh, I just cut the cord. I mean, that's why it was like you know, cutting your umbilical cord no when, when you, you give birth. Just said that's it. I, I Yeah, I planned for it, but it was a complete transition. I went from making over $200,000 a year to being a teaching assistant at UNLV working for Greg Shaw. I was making fourteen thousand dollars a year. <laughs> so, Man, how did you get by? Well, well, you were I stacked had up. Some, I had some residual sorry, income, yeah. which was completely dissipated by four years in school full time and a divorce at the same time because my ex-wife didn't want to make the transition. But that you know, that's a whole other story. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, it was a ra- it was a radical change. So I went from being like this hotshot business guy to a graduate student working for a professor. What a, <laughs> I mean, uh, now I, I talk in my book about a humbling experience that, you know, being humbled can lead to more competence, man. I mean, you threw away the velvet yeah. ropes. You threw away the blazer and the Mercedes. Well, I wasn't. The, the, I did have a Jaguar. <laughs> I wasn't quite. The, I wasn't a I wasn't a Donald Trump, yeah. you know, but still. Yeah, it was it was a big transition. Fourteen thousand dollars a yeah, year, man. I, I was prepared. But but here's the thing, and and you 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 tipped on this. The first meeting I had with my mentor Greg Shaw, we were talking about. He wanted a transition into consulting, and I wanted a transition <laughs> into academia. And one of the first things that he taught me, which I rad- readily and aggressively disputed, was you cannot be an expert in two things at once. So I have thought of myself as an expert at human resources, and I had the misconception that I could also be an expert in educational psychology, motivation, and cognition. And he said to me, you're fooling yourself. Really? And I didn't believe him. 
Because okay. what happens when you hold a deeply entrenched belief and someone gives you what we call anomalous information or data that disputes that belief, what are you going to do? You either ignore it, you reject it, you refute it, you embrace it, or something in between. I totally rejected it, but of course, you know, the story ends poorly because he turned out to be absolutely right. If you really want to be an expert on any particular topic and an expert defined in scientific literature is 10,000 hours of experience, now, you, you can't really partition that out. Right. It's either one thing or, or not. So if you're dedicating 10,000 hours, almost all of your waking hours, to mastering a topic, yeah. and a lot of people espouse to do that, but well, kind of do it half-assed because, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn how to play the piano. So, you know, every you know, two weeks I, I spend 20 minutes learning to play the piano. That's not going to make you an expert unless you're going to live to 200 years old. So <laughs> he, he was absolutely right. And it just was further um, proof that I was very naive. <laughs> that, now, that equation, <laughs> the 10,000-hour equation, was that Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point? Or, uh, was he, or was he pulling from somewhere else? Yeah, you got that part right. He was pulling from someone else, somewhere else. Where was he yes, pulling from? That, there's uh, two guys that wrote a really, really uh, good paper, a very seminal paper, Erickson and Sharnas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Erickson is actually at Florida State. And it's all about the definition and the etiology and development of expertise. So guys like Gladwell, and this is one of my, uh, <laughs> we'll say, pet peeves, guys like Gladwell and Dan Pink, come on, have you familiar mm-hmm. with Pink? Yeah. They take information from academics, and the reason that they are so successful is, number one, they're very charismatic. Number two, they can filter through all the data and get the main points. But neither of those guys, and there's a whole host of other people like that, have actually done any research. <laughs> they know how to write. They know how to speak. But they don't know how to... <laughs> they're, not, they're not digging the hole. No, they're, they're borrowing information from other people, making themselves into millionaires. So mm. the general public will say, hey, you know, Gladwell's a great psychologist. No, he's a great writer. He's a, yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. a great seller of himself. Sure. But mm. you got a lot of guys like that. No, no it happens, man. It, there's from comedians and writers and movies, music. I mean, that exists, man. I mean, those are those people that they do have a knack. They, they can speak and they can put together data in layman's terms for people mm-hmm. and also know how to be um, clicked on. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and when you can do that, that happens. And it happens in a lot of fields, too, you know. Um, do these guys are, are at least they're given credit out, or are they really? No, they rarely, rarely do. I saw Pink uh, give a talk a couple months ago in Virginia, and uh, he's a very dynamic speaker, and he definitely engages the audience. You know, no doubt about that. Yeah. But when people are asking him questions, he is kind of reaching, <laughs> pulling things out of his ass, so to speak, okay, to gotcha. answer the question, and. I think that there's a whole cottage industry of um, entrepreneurs that are effective borrowers of other people's stuff. So you give them a lot of credit for being able to do that and turn it into hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers and and millions of dollars. But it, when pressed on hardcore information, 
Yeah. They just they just don't have that knowledge. That's not what they're about. So in, in many ways, I'm envious of that type of situation. It's a real talent. If you can, yeah, you can take somebody else's stuff and package it. It's like you know, if you put ten pounds of shit in a nice looking bag, That's you can true. sell it. Oh, they do. It's in all the aisles of the grocery stores, <laughs> right. up and down. All right. Well, the packaging costs more than the ingredients. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's poison, so, and they sell it to people. So. But as a, an academic, that kind of stuff bothers me because they they don't really really know what they're talking about. They're just kind of regurgitators. Yeah, so. and and in a lot of our field too, psychology, writing, more science based, right? Most of it's built off of one another anyway, right? I mean, there's no real original idea per se. <laughs> well, uh, I I agree with you there. Just like I agree, there's no such thing as just intrinsic motivation. There's other reasons so if you think about oh dude you just got me <laughs> yeah. well, well we'll get to that <laughs> dude, but my light there... bulb went like i gotta fucking know this oh wait no <laughs> intrinsic motivation no, i don't think there's any true intrinsic motivation Holy shit, not is... really true be, and i'll explain that in a minute <laughs> yeah i'm writing that down i don't want to that'll be fun <laughs> yeah. all right you got that i can't wait to learn that okay now i forgot what else i was gonna say where were we going? We were oh, building on one another's work and field. Right, right. Is there an original idea? I'm on a lot of editorial boards, and that means that I review other people's work, 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 work. Before you're on three, right? Well, I'm on five, but five. What we got doesn't matter. I could be on twenty. I get the same paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, when you when you're on these boards, you you see what is perceived as innovative and moving the field forward. But 98% of the time, it's, again, repackaging of existing ideas. And the issue of plagiarism is really, really prominent in the world of scientific publishing. Yeah. Um, because I, of that, you know, sure. really, what? how can you claim an original idea? Even if you're developing something like new technology, what you're doing is synthesizing existing knowledge. There are not too many people in this world that can claim of original first time out of the box kind of kind of knowledge i agree because so, without the last person's invention of the other invention that right. got you the technology right. to make this invention no. we can't say there's an original day what's what's the movie uh uh this the beautiful mind right i yeah, forget that, that guy john nash yeah. john nash and beautiful yeah. mind that was a good movie man russell yeah russell crowe plays john nash i actually refer to that in my book when i said uh furiously at night uh work like john nash trying to come up with an original <laughs> idea to no avail well originality i i think does involve creativity so you can it may not be a brand new funky idea but it certainly can be less than mainstream and it can be an application of an existing idea with a new context or a new audience or something like that and I kind of think that I did that a little bit in my book. And, yeah. You know, maybe we'll get to that after we talk about intrinsic motivation. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, <laughs> you got to tell me. What? I mean, I, I, I kind of see where you're going is that the idea is that there's always some sort of sort of exterior drive, like be that fear, be that hunger, be that uh, whatever you want to call it. Acceptance, love that we're moving out of something right. else. Well, there's t uh, two guys, Ryan and D.C., and they're at uh, Rochester. Ryan in D.C.? Yeah. yeah I know right. Ryan's there. I'm not sure if D.C.'s still there. But anyway, they they came up with self-determination theory. Ooh, and yeah. that's one of the kind of the backbones of educational psychology. 
And that theory in 20 seconds basically says that all humans have three needs that must be satisfied. A need for competence, a need for relationships or belonging, as they call it, and a need for autonomy, which is basically free will. And from those basic premises, they are really the two people that are credited for, we'll say, uh, researching why people do what they do. And they came up with a great term. It's called a separable outcome. And what is a separable outcome is if you're going to engage in a task or you're going to do something or you, you want to learn something, is there a benefit to you beyond actually mastering the knowledge or completing the job or satisfying that personal need? Okay, Relatively simplistic idea. So if there is a separable outcome, then you are not entirely intrinsically motivated. For example, you know, you started out, and I'm not, this is not a psychoanalysis, so don't do get it. worried. No, I, I love it. <laughs> you said you like to learn. You, you aspire to competence, okay? We haven't explored why you aspire to competence. You could say that you aspire to competence because you believe in the power of knowledge. However, I'm just going to take a shot in the dark. I would say you want to grow your career. You probably want to make some money. You want to enhance your reputation. You want to be desired to other people that you respect. So those are all separable outcomes. So, yeah, you can say I'm intrinsically motivated. I want to gain more knowledge. And I hear this all the time. But there's always something hiding in the corner. And that hiding in the corner may be something as simplistic as recognition by your family, feeling better about yourself because you've gained the knowledge, whatever. Yeah, for or, me, <laughs> if, if I had to be honest, a lot of those could be close for sure. I have a similar story to you to where um, after my football dreams died, I was a nightclub guy. Mm -hmm. And I... Own nightclubs. I was velvet rope dude. Um, you know how it goes, cocaine and wherever from here to Las Vegas. Uh -huh. And like you, I, I gave it all up in like 48 hours. No, I, I read I read about you. And, you know, for me, the competence, you know, I think if I had to be, if I had to look deep, I would say the fear there would be a fear of missing some experience before I die. The fear, because I think competence brings experience. Well, well, fear can be a motive, but the question then becomes why are you fearful? Of the of missing an experience, okay, fear of missing out, yeah, missing yeah. out on something, <laughs> you know, some experience, or because I think competence leads to experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I can sit here and I know I'm going to get some competence today, and it'll lead me down another path that'll take me eventually to an experience. Right. You know, well, well, I admire that perspective, and it's funny you, you brought that up. I just taught uh, last fall. I taught a class at uh, the Adult Learning Center for Rollins College. Oh man, and it was vol volunteer. Yeah, it's volunteer stuff, and it was kind of for me. The separable outcome was promoting my book, of course. But I was, you know, if you look on the resume, it says you know community service. But I got something out of it as well. And there was this eighty-five-year-old woman there, and the first thing I say in the beginning of class, like uh, you know, how come you decided to take this class? And she says, "I'm FOMO," and I'm like, "FOMO? What's FOMO? <laughs> Fear of missing out." Okay, okay, I like her. I respect the lady. Yeah. I know, she was great. <laughs> so she taught me something, but 
So, you know, that, that certainly can be a motive. But when we, when we talk about motives, we want to talk not necessarily what you do. That certainly is important. But why you do what you do is even more important from my perspective as a cognitive psychologist. I think it's the most important. Oh, yeah. and, and it stems from a belief, you know. Right. I mean, you know, Absolutely. Well, and you get people can exhibit the identical behavior for dozens of different reasons. So we don't want to be misguided by just what people appear to be doing because mm -hmm. that's very, very misleading. It does really gives you very little indication of why they're doing it. Uh, and I do that in class, too, the first day. You know, why are you taking this class? So you get a whole gamut of reasons. Be You know, I want to graduate, to I want to learn about motivation, to uh, uh, I want to be an expert in my family and peer group, you know. Yeah. So this is what I mean when I say, and this is not an empirical statement for any of my colleagues that may be listening into the podcast because there really isn't a whole lot of empirical evidence that says there's no such thing as intrinsic motivation. But the theoretical you, application is pretty direct. Yeah. You know, Dr. Parker Mott, another psychologist who's mm -hmm. been on the show a few times. Um, what's up, backcountry doctor, as we referred to him from <laughs> Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, him and I had a uh, text discussion the other day about unconditional love, whether right, it's right. real or yeah. whether we get a reward. I mean, because right. that's essentially no intrinsic basically says that we don't do anything unless there's some kind of return or reward. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I'm willing to stand by that from a philosophical perspective. I just don't necessarily have hard data to support that because it's not really a, a research-based question. If you know the answer to that, I don't know what you're going to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, right? Because it, there are some questions research cannot answer, such as you know religious dogma and personal philosophies of, of life and anything based upon faith. You can't answer that through research. That's kind of out of the ballpark. We just put it over there and the, the compartmentalize it in the back of our brains yeah. and deal with things that we can replicate and we can control and modify through research. So, Yeah, I think that's also what a, where a lot of people find themselves lost, I think, mentally, is when they confuse what they can and can't control. You know, when they refer to their, their emotions or their attitude right. as, well, I just can't control it, but yet the things they can control, they choose not to, and then what they can, they... Well, <laughs> my good man, you have just tapped into the most powerful of all beliefs, and that is a control belief. And from my view and from the perspective of many people who are psychologists, the control belief is more prominent in behavior than anything else. So what is this fancy control belief? Basically, do you feel that you have the ability to orchestrate your life or are you subject to external forces? So when I, I assess people, not that I'm doing this d deliberately and consciously, but there's really two types of people in my mind. Yeah. There's people who will orchestrate their lives and then there are people who will let the world and what happens in the world determine their their path and based upon the strength of your control belief we can predict behavior just like you could say well why did you invite bob hoffman to come and talk to you today well you could have been and i hope you are deliberate and intentional because you felt there was something i could share with your audience 
Or it could be like, well, we couldn't find anybody else, so I asked you to come in. <laughs> no, it was definitely <laughs> delivering. Now, those two statements alone would help you assess the degree of control beliefs and the strength of the control beliefs that someone has. I used to do this all the time when I was recruiting for people like GE and uh, NBC. You get people and they come into the interview and you say, well, uh, how did you get into the accounting business? And some guy will say, well, you know, my father's brother ran an accounting firm and they needed an intern for the summer and I really didn't have any other job. So I took that job and I became an accountant. And then you have other people that will say, you know, since I was five years old, I was fascinated by counting my change. And every night I would go and look how much, see how much I had. And I was very organized and I knew that accounting was the right profession for me. So... Who do you want? You want the, the second guy. You don't want the first guy that just happened to fall into a nice pile of opportunity. Right. So that control belief is really, really important. And you know there are people that also assume a protective kind of path in life and other people that want to create change. So that the basis of both of those types of individuals is how much control you believe you have in your life. And I'm not talking about controlling other people. That's not not what Yeah, not narcissism. No, yeah. No. Not narcissism well, or uh, that's a whole nother <laughs> Well, that's that a whole nother episode. Yeah, that can be effective in business too apparently. <laughs> oh, well, I read a few articles of that, but yeah, I, see, I definitely understand where where you're going and expanding on that for sure. So, if, you know, if I'm in the, I'm in the business of trying to figure somebody out, that's the first thing I look at. Yeah, that, I mean, the why and the belief of, of how they got there, why they yeah. want to be there, right? Mm -hmm. sure. I mean, that's where we're home. We see that a lot, the people that talk about the why. And, you know, I like to refer to the why as also stemming from that belief. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a question I get a lot, which maybe you can even help clarify, is when people try to distinguish the difference between a thought and a belief. Yes. <laughs> right? Because, you know, what's that difference? Because well... I'll give you the textbook definition, and then we can talk about what it means in real life. And this kind of relates back to the absolutist perspective. There's two types of knowledge. There's knowledge that is justified, and there is knowledge that is not justified. So when we say knowledge is justified, we can say it has a basis in replication and fact. If you're a guy like Yuri Geller and you travel the world trying to dispute every myth you know people believe in ghosts people believe in um, palm reading people believe in ufos and you know, all sorts of things those in those situations that is a belief because it cannot be substantiated by ex controlled experimentation and facts and that's facts with kind of a big f things that are indisputable now you could go outside and tell me the sky is pink and I can tell you the sky is blue, but the difference is my knowledge is justified because I can give you a scientific replicated reason why the sky appears to be blue while you only make your assertion based upon personal experience. And that's a big problem in the world of psychology in general and the world of education because we get people that come in to the classroom with deeply entrenched unjustified beliefs, otherwise known as opinions. Okay. <laughs> so if you're an educator, your job is to speak the truth with a capital T. Now, sometimes people will not want to hear the truth and filter that out. You that, hit that cognitive dissonance. Yeah, that happens all the time. I mean, 
the the biggest misconception in education is learning styles. And I will tell you, and this is an area of research I'm doing now, 90% of existing educators believe in learning styles as a superior method of instruction. And if you don't know what learning styles are, it's basically some people prefer to be presented information visually, some prefer audio information, and some prefer manipulating kinetically with, with the material, like doing projects and stuff. And there's a few other learning styles. But in fact, a very conventional belief in education is not supported by any real data except by people who are selling learning style products. They have all kinds of data. But again, this is an example in real life. If you think about this, I'm in the business of training teachers to teach effectively. So if teacher, a teacher candidate, as we call them, comes into the classroom with a belief in learning styles, and we present the evidence that refutes that learning style, yet the person does not change their belief. So what do they do? They go into the classroom, and they perpetuate that belief even more. So it, it's kind of like basically giving a drug addict <laughs> yeah. more, more stuff to... Take them going. on the wrong path, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. what, what, really those beliefs become so strong because they come from experience, right? right. Yeah. I, well, if I've it. lived through it, then it must be so, right? What would or, Dr. Albert Ellis say, that it must be so? We, we <laughs> well, masturbate? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's the problem with a lot of psychology is experience is intuitive. And if you think it makes sense and the surface level information supports it like if i asked you you know how do you learn best you're probably going to say well i like to read or i like to watch videos or i like to listen to podcasts okay. i do i'm, I'm going to go with I'm a, a podcast i'm an <laughs> addict yes all right well that's fine well i'm going to teach you geography via a podcast okay <laughs> and we'll see how that works out so you can see that yeah. <laughs> there, yeah, yeah. there are, are very easy ways to dispute a very popular misconception and a false belief that people have. So as an educator and as a psychologist, we always want to keep in mind you know, what, where these beliefs are emanating from, and everything's learned. So if you've been in a situation and it continues to be reinforced and it seems to work for you, you will continue that behavior in all likelihood. And until one thing, there's one thing that must happen for you to have any hope of modifying that false belief, you have to have some doubt. Mm. And you got to question it. Yeah. And how many people are really questioning what they believe? Well, they need a reason to question it. It's okay. easier to, it's easier <laughs> right? to go, you're wrong, you're wrong, it's, you guys got it wrong. Now, you told me... You were in a situation a few years back, and I don't know exactly the time frame or anything, but it doesn't matter, that you came to a point where you were questioning the utility of your life and the path that you were taking. But there was a period of time where it met all of your needs. It satisfied you in a lot of different ways. And until you got to the point where there was enough doubt and enough dissonance, you weren't going to change. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you ex probably experienced some sort of series of events or a singular event where you said, you know, holy shit, what, what, what am I doing? 
know, like, <laughs> why, why, why should I do this? Like, is this what I want? Is yeah, this, uh, it became so, a sixteen-hour argument in right, my living room. Right. Well, there's a little guy in your head, or excuse me, a little person in your head. Yeah, that <laughs> a man. Call yep. you executive control in psychology language, and uh, you know that's going to focus your attention. So you've got the, that conflict. You need the conflict, but really. If you encounter someone that has a deeply entrenched false belief, you've got to get to the point where you give them some credible information that refutes that belief. And until you, you're able to open that little crack in the door, once you get the door opened, you can, you can start stuffing stuff in there. <laughs> and it's not a, uh, we'll say a very quick process, but it, it's one that can be deliberate and intentional and structured, but it doesn't happen until that doubt from that false belief or that unjustified knowledge, as you know, I mentioned earlier. Well, qu- question in self becomes very uncomfortable because you also are kind of questioning what you perceived in your past experience. Right. And so <laughs> you have to start by going, well, everything I just perceived or perceived in the past could possibly be wrong to create this absolute belief. Right. And, well, you know, we talk about, you know, the difference between a belief is basically unobstantiated, that a belief is based on a perception of an experience or right. a moment in time before Absolutely. it can be fed true competence to be broken open. Mm-hmm. What is uh, then the difference between a thought, per se, and then the belief? Then the belief is unsubstantiated, then the thought becomes verbal, obviously, is a little different. but Well, the belief is going to underlie all the behavior. The belief is going to influence the motive, and the motive is going to the influence thought. the behavior. So it's, it's kind of like a, a pretty structured chain of events. Um, but most people don't really even look at what they believe. They just think it. Or feel it, right? Don't you love it when somebody goes, I just feel like it's the wrong answer. Well, that's, of course, based upon experience. It's just not we, even though some people say you're born with a blank slate, uh, like Steven Pinker. That's a really good book. If you haven't read that, yeah, I know you would enjoy it. No, he's the Harvard <laughs> professor, yeah, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah he, he's a great guy. Uh, anyway, anyway, he writes some great stuff. But um, since all of our behavior is learned... We also learn expectations of ourself. And when there is a gap between who you want to be and who you are, we're almost always inclined to want to close that gap. So whether you're a substance abuser or you're a workaholic or you're your average everyday productive ideal citizen, you're perpetually faced with a dilemma. And that dilemma is between the ideal self and the actual self. So in in good circumstances, if you perceive this gap, and of course you first need to perceive the gap. A lot of people just don't even know. Well, you You can't change anything (laughs) you're not aware of, right? Right. The the awareness brings change. Without, Without questioning self, and being aware of it, you're, you're just dead in the fucking right. water so, anyway. Number one is awareness. And, and that can be a really tough nut to crack. You know, like uh, Courtney Love, you know, her great quote, as far as I'm concerned, is only dumb people are happy. Because, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, that's not my, not my line. That's <laughs> but funny. she did say that. Okay. <laughs> because if you are aware of what you could be and you're dissatisfied with that gap, you're going to make some changes. Mm. So ideally, if you're going to make the change, it's like, okay, I, I want to be smarter. 
I want to be more wealthy, I want to be more friendly, you can take positive, constructive steps to do that. In the uh, worst circumstances, you don't feel you have the ability to control your life, so it goes back to that, that control belief. So what are you going to do? Well, a lot of people will self-medicate. A lot of people become uh, promiscuous. A lot of people will cut themselves. A lot of people will indulge in food. Yeah. Hell, they, di- they dive into work. Right. Any one of those things, to an extreme, is a problem. So that that's what happens. But that's a behavior that responds to closing that gap. And from most cultural perspectives, those behaviors are not very positive, right? Yeah. No, it's But true. that's one way to do it. So if you think, like, well, why does somebody join a gang? Well, I talked to you about that basic need of having affiliation and being belonging to something. So if you perceive, well, I'm not, I'm not there yet, you're going to seek out remedies to close that belief gap. Yeah. And you know, people, whether it's a life of crime and an affiliation with a bunch of bunch of hoods, at least you're satisfying that Acceptance. need. It closes that gap between the ideal self and and. And the current self. Yeah, looking so, for that acceptance on right. some sort of yeah. social level. And in, right. my, in my book, I talk about a, probably a personal experience from old memory I don't realize. But I talk about the <laughs> little kid in elementary school who's just came to this school who's getting in line for lunch. You know, his eyes are in the lunchroom going, okay, where am I going? Who knows me? I don't know anybody. By the time he turns and paid for it and got his milk and he's lapped and he's entering and the room opens, his eyes are darting for any level of acceptance. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not necessarily looking for a comfortable place. He's walking around and then that eye contact, a smile, maybe someone dressed like him. And then it's immediately I'll now adapt my beliefs for that comfort, for that acceptance. And that's how somewhat we wind up a kid. Well, he just did a 180. (laughs) You know, the kid got love and acceptance immediately, and we don't want to give that up. Well, a lot of that that boils down to how confident you are in yourself, too. Mm. So, And that, you know, if I had to declare, there isn't a pecking order of, you know, the prominence of individual beliefs. But confidence, it goes hand-in-hand with confidence, you know, we call it self-efficacy, which is based upon, you know, how how effective you can be in reaching certain goals. Like, you know, can I fly a seven forty-seven? Can I hit a, a baseball with a bat? But what I like to say is competence. You have some basic research, but if you have confidence, you can perform an experience. Well, all the research shows that people with equal levels of ability, the person with the greatest degree of confidence outperforms a similar other person with competence and if you think about major league sports and professional football all those guys are at the same kind of level of physical ability Mm -hmm. and the only difference are the psychological factors wow (laughs) that's a huge thing to set out on that that a the idea of confidence being better at something while also being trained right is better than someone that's just simply trained Absolutely. There is probably no more ubiquitous finding in educational and psychology literature as to the power of self-efficacy. Right, the and power ba- of belief. Basically, when we have equal skills, it's the person that believes in their success that will eventually be most successful. Yeah. And you can go across domains from like reading to sports to weight gain to things as unbelievable as controlling recovery from cancer. Yeah, the people that believe they have the ability to recover 
with the same diagnosis, although, you know, that's, that's a little fuzzy if you're the exact same diagnosis, but people who have those powerful confidence, confidence beliefs will wind up being more healthy and have a be- better recovery rate. So yeah. you, you can look in just like any field. So that, yeah. that belief. But if you talk about the kid in the lunch line and that story, okay, some people will not have enough confidence in their social skills which will wind up influencing their behavior, and instead of making that eye contact, they'll just go put their head down, you know, and find an empty seat. And I, I actually write about this in, in my book, Motivation for Learning and Performance, that, you know, people go into a business meeting, right? You have a meeting scheduled at noon, so somebody shows up at, at 10 minutes to 12, and they're looking around, and, you know, am I going to sit at the head of the table? Am I going to sit in the middle? Or am I going to sit at the seats, so, you know, around the perimeter of the room? All those things are based upon personal beliefs. You know, maybe, you know, why would you sit at the head of the table? Well, if you thought you were the actual leader or the, or the formal leader of the meeting, you would do that. But if you felt you were the informal leader of the meeting, you might do that too. If you're not have lacking confidence in your ability to make a contribution, what are you going to do? You're going to sit in the back, you know. I, this happens to me every semester in my class. The kids give away. <laughs> they give themselves away, don't they? As, absolutely. It's, I, I just love doing this, and this makes me uh, evil, Dr. Hoffman. <laughs> but they walk in. People choose their seats, right? And smart people usually sit in the front row yeah, because they're very engaged. They're into the content, right? People that are lacking in confidence are... There because they have to be because people take required courses and stuff. So those in the back. So what do I do the first day of class? I go to the back of the room with my <laughs> my my clicker for the slides and stuff, and I start talking to people in the back because you know that's <laughs> who you got to engage first. Right. To- those are the people that are hard to engage. Exactly. So just things as you know as crazy as like where what seat do you choose can tell you a lot about a person. In yeah. a particular situation. Now, I wouldn't make broad generalizations based upon seat choice alone, yeah. but I write about being a motivational detective, and being a motivational detective says, let me look at all the clues. Let me see every bit of information that I can take in and make sense of and then use that information to help me understand the behavior. So, I like it. What's the name oh. of your book, man? Go ahead and plug that thing. <laughs> it's plug Motivation for Learning and Performance. Yeah, you can get it, it on Amazon. Yeah, and you can also find it on our website too, on the confident on yeah, the confident so I, I side. Definitely appreciate that. Yeah, definitely, man. You know that drive toward. Actually, I, I refer to a principle that I talk about in my book called CCE. That competence, the competence equals enthusiasm, that can lead you to a state of happiness. And all of that begins, we can take a simple interest and follow it and with a little research, get a little competent. As we build the competence, we can become confident enough to have an experience in it Mm -hmm. that either we can or cannot be enthusiastic in, meaning we can achieve a state of happiness through many paths. Well, what you've just explained in uh, layman's terms is pretty much how, how people determine what they do. Uh, usually, and what you really just said was, if I can associate a positive emotion with something that I do, and I can feel good about completing that task or engaging in that task, I, I will. It will lead to my happiness because it's kind of a spiraling effect. If you're performing task, and you know, some people say, "Well, I continue to do things that I fail at." That only goes so far, right? <laughs> you right. Know, you're going to continue to you know try and uh, ice skate when every time you fall down. 
right? Well, you might because of the social circumstances, but in all likelihood, if, if you're out there by yourself and you keep hurting yourself, you're not going to go back, right? So, but, <laughs> knowing, <might> <laughs> but even then, knowing the short-term pain versus long-term pain, what? long-term pain of wondering, would I ever be a good skater, or the short-term pain of your ass being swollen going, <laughs> nope, I'm not a fucking skater. <laughs> right. Well, it boils down to how, how much you want it, too. You know, and people say to me, well, you know, how could you write a book, a textbook by yourself, you know, 450 pages, and, uh, you know, I did it in about a year and a half. Holy shit. But if you want it, if you want it enough. Look, let's talk (laughs) about that, because you hear coaches, and Pop Warner in particular, that don't (laughs) say shit. They they yell at their kid and go, you got to want it, or you got to get in there, or hit somebody. You know, can we dissect it for a minute, what it means to either want it or have it? As they may refer to well, it. Well, we already talked about this. Well, the intrinsic, yeah. No, this is the separable outcome, okay? Okay. If the kid is in Pop Warner because they enjoy the activity by itself, you're not going to have that problem. They're going to put out. If the kid is in Pop Warner because they think they should be to gain social acceptance among their peers or to get recognition from their parents... Then you're going to run into those issues because they're really not into it. And they're only interested in the the, uh, secondary consequences of being successful at the task. So, and this happens a lot in education, too. Like, you know, I I haven't done any uh, formal survey on this, but I'm sure you can find data that would say to you, if you're going to a university to appease your parents... Or to, you know, everybody in my family has gone to the university and is successful. You're not going to be as enthusiastic about completing the test because you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're lacking confidence, too. Well, yeah, well, that's part of it. That may be what the reason is. But, you know, a lot of times we succumb to social pressure. So what it boils down to is exactly what you said. The it part, you know, why am I here to begin with? is going to be very instrumental as to what the behaviors are, and that it part is, of course, going to be undermined by beliefs. I don't mean undermined in a, in a negative way, but going to be supported by the beliefs and that competency belief and that control belief that we talked about is going to be really, really important there as to how much you're going to put out. Mm. Which is why people can say to themselves on New Year's Day that, all right, I'm, ne- I'm, I'm going to do this now. They can say the thought, but that thought is not substantiated by any true, what, absolute belief. Well, or, a, or does it just lack competence? That, that's a pretty complex thing because a lot of times we make resolutions because of social pressure. Right? Yeah, you just re- yeah, you just refer <laughs> uh, to that, sure. So we, we may be doing it for all the wrong reasons. Uh, we also need, in, in that particular case, to know that based upon what we're, we're striving for, there could be some biological overtones that will influence success or not. If, you know, if you go and you're trying to lose weight and you're reducing your calories, you know, I don't want to get into the neurological stuff here, but there are some physiological reasons why you may not be successful. That's why these people who make radical changes almost often fail because there are some neurological consequences of a radical behavior change, and your body just can't support that. Can so, we can we go there? No, we can't go there because I'm not a neurologist. All right. That's the second time. I, you know how many people I try to take out of their lane? <laughs> well, there was just an article published on how uh, the frequency of, of talking about neurology and biopsychology has increased in the scientific literature 
over the last couple of years. So I can probably get you one of those guys, but well, I, my, I don't want to give any false impressions here. Yeah, my favorite is uh, <laughs> Dr. Rhonda Patrick and Found My Fitness. Uh-huh. I just I love her to death. I, I generally share a lot of her stuff, but she's in some epigenetic research. She's into t- yeah. into the uh, the gut biome research. Yeah. So I don't do that kind of stuff. I mean, I have a chapter in the book about the biopsychology of motivation. But none from my personal. Let's experience. go there. That's that's my Dan Pink chapter. Okay, all right. Let's not give it all away, folks. You're gonna have to buy the book to understand the the the, the motive. Well, what is the science behind motivation? Well, uh, we've actually talked a lot about it uh, in controlled studies, and whether it be in an organizational context or a school context, you you can create conditions and you can prime people for certain behaviors and then see which factors will uh, instigate behavior as opposed to um, uh, deter behavior. So to to answer the question of the science behind motivation, that's so far ranging from, you know, putting rats in a maze and seeing if you can shape their behavior to go in a certain direction and what kind of consequences accelerate meeting the goal of getting the piece of cheese or or restrict that goal. And from that, and it's very imprecise science because to do a highly controlled study on motivation, you can only do that synthetically. So therefore it's not natural motivation. (laughs) How do you do that? that, This is one of the big dilemmas of conducting scientific research. You can do a field study and you can do research in a classroom but there are so many other factors that you might not be able to account for that could be contributing towards the outcome you observe. So if you've got one end, you've got the totally uncontrolled situation of just sitting in the back of the classroom and, and, and either observing or, or creating conditions where you try to see which method of instruction is best or what type of instructional material is best or what room configuration is best. And you can have billions of different questions. So you can do that. But you have so many other things that you can't measure, like the the attitude of the child, the teaching style of the teacher, the culture of the classroom, the culture of the school, demographics. You know, all, some of that stuff we can control, but others we can't. And even though we assume they are randomly uh, distributed in, in society, meaning you know, on any given day, certain people are happy, certain number of people are anxious. So you know, it all evens out over the course in a classroom and or an organizational situation you can't control everything it's just not possible right. so the other extreme is well we're going to bring you into my cognitive efficiency lab which i used to have and we're going to have you solve a series of problems and everybody's going to going to solve the same problems we're going to see how long it takes and we're also going to ask you to self-report and this is the big problem with research most motivational research it's you fill out a survey okay now if you're like any real person in the world when you fill out a survey you have an expectation of portraying yourself in a certain way so if i say to you know hey adam uh, do you drink uh more or less than 45 alcoholic beverages a week you know in most cases you're probably going to say less than 45 because drinking 45 drinks a week is not socially desirable so we have to deal with that stuff too and most motivational research is based upon self-report so, so uh, who's it gets not, really fuzzy <laughs> yeah, who's not going to put their best foot forward 
you know, well, especially in a report of drive and motivation. I mean, could we say that the the motor, you know, I don't know, what would you say? What inhibits most people's motivation? Fear of failure. That That's pretty much what it boils down to. And that's why we use all kinds of strategies that people will passionately refute. For example, um, procrastination, you know, why do people procrastinate? Well, people say, and this is the people say, that, well, I procrastinate because I work better when I have a really tight deadline. You know what? That's bullshit. That's absolutely bullshit. That flies in the face of every research finding on the planet that says if you take a deliberate and planned approach to completing a task, you will be more effective than if you just do it at the last minute. Okay? But people will swear that's why they Progress. They do, man. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can I go get my daughter real quick? <laughs> yeah, go get her. <laughs> I got I to gotta put her down. And like, I so that's, that's what people say. Yeah, and, and I said it. I can't front. Going through my first parts of the year of college, I was like, oh, my papers are written better when it's 24 hours prior. Well, people will say that. But in reality, what that means is. It's not scientific at all. Well, forget about scientific. Just, just look at this from a, kind of a conventional wisdom perspective. If you procrastinate and fail, what's your reaction to that situation? Yeah, yeah. I didn't try that hard. Right. So you set yourself up <laughs> not to feel bad. Dude, exactly. Dude, hold on. That's the whole key to life here. Oh, man. I had a theory. <laughs> I was coaching down in Marco Island right before I moved back home to Orlando. and I was, co- right. I was a defensive coordinator. And I would watch the cool kids, you know, of the school, which, you know, it was a very small school. When it came time for them to perform a, a one-on drill to where it was them, you would see 80% effort, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if they had to hit somebody. And they would hit somebody, and I put it together for a while, and this, my thought was, I think they perform half-assed, so if they fail or lose or don't do it well, they can always just justify, well, I didn't try that hard, so I'm still good. Right. I just didn't Absolutely. try that hard. That, that, That's real. That accounts for much of the behavior that we experience in the classroom and in in life in general. And and I deal with this all too frequently because um, many students, or I like to call them learners, but many, many learners will go ahead and they'll sign up for five or six courses in a semester. I just got one of these the other day. It happens every semester. So I get, I get this email and the email says, well, I don't think I'm doing really well in your course. Because, you know, my courses are generally pretty rigorous so that, you know, you, you can't fluff through it. So she says, I ha- I'm taking six classes. I'm pregnant. I have a child, a toddler now. I work. This is, this is all allegedly, too. No. Uh, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. Well, yeah. there's no way I'm going to verify it, but I hear this, hear this all the time. So uh, I'm working. And, you know, I, I had uh, the flu last week. And I, so I got all these. These reasons that are allegedly the causes of my poor performance. Okay, so let's just think this through here. First of all, we know the person is articulating an external control. Their control belief is on all this other stuff. I've got no control over this because A, B, C, D, E, all these excuses, okay? So we've got that. But if you think about, if you put yourself in that kind of position where you're taking six classes and you start to screw up, well, it's if I didn't take six classes, I'd be doing really well because they also tell you, I always get A's. <laughs> and this time. <laughs> right. So if you put yourself in a situation where you have 
a personal justification for lack of success, what happens? If you fail, you don't feel bad about yourself. If I didn't take those six classes, I would have done just fine. So people use that strategy or they use the strategy of setting slam dunk goals that it would be almost impossible not to meet. So, you know, uh, and, and we've all, this is not something that is, uh, we'll say, abnormal behavior. It's very, we've all done it, okay? When I was going to school, and I'm sure you, you did the same thing, you, you look at the schedule and like, okay, I know I got to take stats and I know I got to take uh, biology. Let me take uh, history of rock music at the same time. So I, I have something to fall back on. I don't want to overwhelm myself because we don't like to, generally people don't like to think that much either. You don't want to get, <laughs> so it's, true. it's a, a success strategy, but if you overload yourself, it's actually a failure avoiding strategy and, and which is why New Year's resolutions don't work. Well, that's what you're saying is they over, well, you said abrupt change, like overload to where it's like, all right, I'm going to cut out, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm cutting everything I've ever eaten poorly out today. <clears throat> I'm now going to work out five days a week <laughs> and you well, never even walked. You yeah. know what I mean? It's that it's setting, you call them slam dunk goals. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call that a slam dunk goal. I would call that an unrealistic and impossible goal <laughs> to go from something, you know, being a sedentary lifestyle to, you know, I'm going to work out six days a week. That's just insane. And uh, But uh, then again, that's a, a reason that people will justify the failure. And if you think back to something we discussed earlier, the ideal self and the the, the current self, if that gap, that that's a way to look at that gap and justify the gap so you feel good about yourself. And remember, the competency belief, which I know is near and dear to your heart, yeah. is something that people think about all the time. People do not want to be perceived as stupid. They do not right. want to be perceived as ineffective. So what they will do, they'd rather be perceived as lazy uncooperative or I don't care overly aggressive right lackadaisical whatever you want to call it ambivalent they'd rather be perceived like that than be perceived as being incompetent so a lot of times the behavior we see in classrooms in boardrooms and in life in general people are all dealing with those kind of issues and will operate accordingly to protect the self and you know you can read in the book it's one of the chapters self-worth theory that can be a dominant motive for many people is to insulate the self from the reality of who they are. That's funny. <laughs> you as a, almost bridged to my very next question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you use the word reality and I argue on my book sometimes, but that separation between truth, reality, and perception and how effective that can be in manipulating your beliefs, which change your dialogue and create your feeling. And so a lot of people, I don't know, they, they would argue the fact there is a truth, there isn't a truth, there is a reality, or the, is the reality my perception? You know, how much does the perception of there is a reality based on my perception plays into motivation or drive? Well, that's a pretty esoteric question for somebody like me. I will, will say that um, we all interpret our metaphysical world. We one of our primary innate, and I will say innate, needs, being that we're born with them, is to make sense of what we see around us. So we're in this perpetual process of sense-making that the literature calls perception, and that's making 
meaning, applying meaning to what happens in our life. And how we apply that meaning certainly is based upon our beliefs and, and our experiences. But if you really think about what is the difference between reality from an objective external perspective and perception is the ability to recognize who you are. And I, I don't want to sound uh, mundane or, or redundant here, but it goes back to all the self-beliefs that you have. We manipulate our reality based upon that gap between the desired self and the actual self. So when we make, so to speak, misinterpretations and misperceptions of reality and develop false beliefs, that's a protective mechanism. And a lot of ways it's an adaptive protective mechanism because it allows us to go through life without the consistent ongoing trauma that we do to ourselves. We're experiencing. So it's from an evolutionary perspective, it's really adaptive. Some people yeah. will argue that things like depression and anxiety are adaptive mechanisms to protect individuals from the environment. Mm. So keep you from doing what you're doing. You know, I talk in the book that the Bible or the Bible, the body talks to you. That the body oh, I, goes I think I, I think I say in the book that depression is like your body going, Hey fucker, something's wrong. <laughs> you know, listen. Yeah. Well, I mean the there has yet to been solid, concrete evidence as to whether the body generates the emotion or the emotion generates the physiological change. So you know when you get anxious, all of a sudden you, you know, your stomach may lock up, you might start to shake. At the very least, but which you're, was not, the trigger? you're not really uh, very, we'll say, fluid or expressive verbally. And uh, like if you have to solve a problem or something, you're anxious. Mm -hmm. If you're a performer and you're anxious, you forget your lines that you knew inside and out. If you're a student and you're you're have fear failure and and you're anxious about the test questions, you'll you'll do poorly because we only have so much processing capacity. But is it the is it the situation that generates the emotion or the and thought? the bodily change, or is the bodily change proceed? The emotion. So that's a that's a we're a still researching the catalyst. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a somewhat of a philosophical question. At the end of the day, you know, I'm I'm very practical. It doesn't matter. Okay. We know when students have to take a test, they can get nervous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we know when it's the bottom of the ninth and two outs, and you're you're facing the best hitter on the opposite team. You thinking to yourself, oh, man, I hope I don't fuck this up. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and you that's going to influence your performance. So, I don't know. It doesn't really matter, mm -hmm. but it's certainly something that we, we should recognize. Well, the, the protective mechanism you talked about is, is, is in, intriguing to me, is that we, we say this to ourselves so we don't feel the depression or feel the failure. And remember, I asked you a while ago, and you were very quick to say it's, it's the fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And there's so much noise, I think, out there today about, you know, face the failure, et cetera, that maybe they miss how important, like you just took it much deeper. We talked about the fear of failure, but then you bridged it much farther about and the realities and how we protect ourselves so we don't fail. And the point I was getting to is a lot of times this society has taught a lot about self-acceptance. And I think there's a fine line between self-acceptance and apathy. And we, we kind of cross it to where like, no, I'm happy with who I am. 
or are you just yeah. self-accepting <laughs> to protect yourself and right. sitting in some sort of indifferent apathy or something? Well, I would say what you're describing is one of the reasons that the popular literature has really embraced things like learning styles, like multiple intelligences, and the vernacular boils down to, you know, everybody gets a trophy. Right, right, yeah. A and depending on your perspective, that can be a good thing or that can be a bad thing because, in my opinion, it inspires complacency and acceptance of mediocrity. And that's what we've found. That's what the data shows, at least from an educational perspective, where more people are getting A's. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just the reality. And it also the, uh, leads to a lot of negative consequences, like the development of narcissism, because you feel your way is the best way, and you're entitled to that. So I think what you're describing are, are socio-political kinds of issues, and I tend not to kind of want to deal with that. I, I think it's it's important to recognize who you are. Now, you can be accepting of yourself, and there's nothing wrong with accepting the fact that you're going to uh, not aspire to be the president of the United States or be the captain of the football team or whatever. But not everyone is comfortable with that. So from my point of view, you have to figure out what your level of comfort is. So if I sit on the couch all day, I don't feel like I'm a, a worthless individual. I don't really give a shit. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> so, but for other people, if you feel like you're not reaching your potential, that could potentially result in a, a negative emotional reaction. But there, there's one other thing we haven't talked about, and that is regulation. So when we encounter an adverse circumstance in our lives, we usually have a choice. We can react favorably to that circumstance or we can withdraw become emotional anxious depressed or whatever so the people that and I shouldn't really say react positively but react adaptively so let's say your spouse passes away now obviously anyone who has a concern for that person will have uh, they may be depressed they they may feel that their life is over. But what they do have is a subjective reaction to an emotionally triggered event. And some people will use that as a reason to withdraw, and other people will use that as a reason to grow and develop and prosper from that event. Now, you may say, well, this guy is crazy, and I'm going to prosper when my spouse dies. But it... Now, there's an old cliche, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, right? Yeah. So it, it can help you develop as an individual and be the person that you want to be. But the thing that we should acknowledge is the reaction to the events of our lives is purely subjective. And there are people that still continue their path in life by using that situation as a way to respond favorably and learn from the situation. Others use that as a protective veil and withdraw from life. Mm. You know, I, I'll, uh, I, the best example for me personally is my, uh, my former mother-in-law who subsequently passed away. When her husband passed away, she completely changed her life. 
and she used that as a justification for her deep religious vows, and, and she became totally active in the church mm-hmm. as a result of that. Now, some people would perceive that as positive. Some people might perceive that as really withdrawing from society, but her whole MO, or modus operandi, motivation in life changed as a result of her subjective reaction to that event. Other people may have decided, well, you know what? He's gone now, so now I can pursue a career. I can do whatever I want. I don't know if she wanted to you know, be really involved in the church for many, many years, but subjective reaction. Yeah. And that, that those really determine the course of life. So we can we the bottom line here is we can respond to emotion in a favorable way or we can disengage and respond in a reactionary way, a self-defensive way. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I mean, that choice becomes, <clears throat> kind of manifests our whole life narrative. You know, how we choose to interpret, you know, those things that happen to us. Whether we see that life should well. be fair and <laughs> people should treat us fairly, or do we see it as, hey, this is, it makes me stronger, as, the, as you said the adage goes. Or the fact that, hey, I've now learned something, I can, you know, grow from that. I, I think the narrative that we develop based on those experiences is influential. Well, let me share a little secret with you that's not really that much of a secret, but we'll call it that for now. My approach to writing the book Motivation for Learning and Performance was very practical, hands-on. I didn't want to write a regular old textbook. So what I did was I identified people that I thought could illustrate the theory that I was writing about. And those people, I figured, you know, well, what am I going to do? I'd like to get some people that everyone can relate to, no matter who's reading the book. So I can, you know, maybe I'll get a teacher, maybe I'll get a lawyer, maybe I'll get a guy that runs a store, a gal that teaches aerobics, whatever. And I thought to myself, well, if you can't make a connection with those people, maybe I can find some celebrities. So I spent a good part of a year trying to identify people who were leaders in their field. And the gamut of leaders in the book ranged from Bernie Madoff, who I established a relationship with why he was in prison, to Cheryl Hines, the actress, Emmy Award winning actress uh, from Curb Your Enthusiasm, mm-hmm. to a whole host of other people, Nick Lowry, Hall of Fame NFL player. Like that guy. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of really good people. But here's the point that I want to make, and that point is every single one of these people, whether they're in business, acting, music, politics, whatever, when they encountered, and we'll say, an environmentally unfriendly event, otherwise known as failure, getting laid off, getting divorced, somebody dying, whatever, financial ruin, every single one of them responded favorably to that situation and used it as a life-changing event in a positive way. And Nick Lowry, who, when he retired from the NFL, had the highest field goal accuracy percentage and the most field goals in NFL history, he taught me, he said, you must allow yourself the ability to learn. And a lot of people won't do that. When they encounter obstacles, whether it be losing your luggage at the airport or getting fired from your job or getting into a horrific accident that paralyzes you, you can still respond to those types of events in a favorable way. But a lot of people look at it as 
a reflection on who they are as opposed to something we should expect in life. And a lot of us don't allow ourselves to learn. We think like if you screw up on a test, it's the end of the world. No, it's the opportunity for you to say, maybe I should be studying a little bit differently. Or maybe I'm, I, I really am not into this topic, or I shouldn't be in this degree program, or maybe I shouldn't be in this field. So that's, that was like a universal lesson from everyone that I encountered. I mean, Cheryl Hines, she tried out her first part. She was rejected for her first part three times. Okay? She got it on the fourth try, and the only reason she got it was through the, the support of her sister, who happens to work at the University of Central Florida. <laughs> that's how that's how I connected to her. But ah, yeah, I mean, just just think about it. Four times for the same part. You know, a lot of people after the first time say, "I'm not. I shouldn't be an actress. I'm done. Or, yeah. yeah, I'm done." You go back for the second time. Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm feeling kind of shitty about myself now. Well, I'm going to go back for a third time. So she went back for the third time and still didn't get it. it. Took her four tries to get her first part, and you know, now she just married uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. and is she's got an Emmy. So you yeah. know, it worked out, but. Very easily, Cheryl could have went in a total different direction and and be uh, you know a server at a restaurant, which she was doing beforehand. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's only something wrong with that if Cheryl didn't want to be that if her, person. If her gap right, was right. closer too far, right? But she took an adaptive approach to closing that gap because she believed in her ability to be an actress. Mm. She needed a little coaching, and that's that's actually an, another point. Uh, a theme throughout everybody in the book and even somebody like Bernie Madoff now I don't, I don't care what you think about him I've had a lot of communication with him over the last couple of years including just last week but you know what he he dedicated his life to he did really really well okay yeah. so he he ruined a lot of lives and he's very remorseful about that but he was a master at financial transactions uh, what most people don't know is that he started with $500. He was a lifeguard in 1960. Saved $500 over the summer. Went to the SEC to apply for a securities license, right? Yeah. With $500. So they left him out of the building. So he came back, and he made a pitch to them. They eventually gave him a securities trading license. He took that 500 and this has got nothing to do with anything you've heard about in the press. This is years way, yeah. decades this was before. His, this was his personal financial fund for his family. He grew that into $900 million in a separate account, all legal appropriate transactions. So, you know, he's got a lot of skill. But, and this is the point that I wanted to make, he had a coach and he had an advisor. Now, that coach and advisor wasn't portrayed to... to uh, accurately in the recent TV movie with Richard Dreyfuss, but the coach and advisor helped him manage through all of these situations. And every single person in the book has a coach or advisor. Now, that advisor could be a spiritual advisor. It could be a spouse. It could be a friend. Or it could be a legitimate coach-type person. But the point is, nobody does it alone. So all the things that we've talked about today, and, you know, I don't know you from beyond this interview. Uh, I don't know, know anything really about you two guys. But I do know that somewhere in your life, you have somebody that scaffolds you and helps you go in the right direction. Yeah, man. Even if you just look in the mirror, 
even though I wouldn't call that scaffolding because most people can't see the accurate reflection. That's right. But we have people that guide us. We Thomas. bounce ideas off of. And even the most wildly successful people in the world have that, that someplace in their life. And a lot of people, unfortunately, and this applies to students, they try to go at it alone. Yeah. I encourage the mentors. I mean, in, yeah. in the book, I talk about yeah. virtual, virtual and physical mentors. I mean, I have a plethora of virtual mentors I listen to, and my physical mentors range from, you know, Steve props me up and helps produces this show, yeah. you know, to my main clinical mentor who's on the podcast yesterday. You know, it's almost like I got a mentor support. I mean, my wife, please, she has to deal with my <laughs> manic, hypo, talking ass all the time. You know, without that intrinsic rock that I have, uh -huh. are, you, are you kidding me, man? Well, cognitive rampage didn't come out of thin air, right? <laughs> no. She had listened to many, many cognitive rampages, and finally I was just like, yep, that's what we're going to do. No, well, microphones are very conducive to ranting and raving, right? <laughs> they <laughs> I, are. I, that's why I'm enjoying myself today. Dude, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Any um, love websites? I put your website up. What was it? What was it? Was Steve Finding Mo? Yeah, FindingMo.com. Uh, there, there's actually, a, if you're into this kind of stuff and you, you want to uh, reach your maximum potential, close that gap between the desired self and the actual self, I've got two ways, well, actually three ways to do it. You can go to UCF and uh, take uh, study for a master's degree in applied learning and instruction, and I run that program. So you can uh, see me at, for uh, hardly any money at all. That's it. That's it. Because <laughs> tuition rates at, at UCF are an excellent value. They really are. Yeah, that school's huge, man. That's, I, that's... I also have a uh, video course developed from the book on Udemy. You know about Udemy? You guys know about Udemy? Y you're going to let me know about Udemy, though. Yeah, I've got a course, uh, uh, Motivation for Learning and Performance on Udemy. It's... Uh, it's an easy way for those visual learners. <laughs> I'm kidding. You played right into the love, man, the learning well, language. Well, you know, it's a commercialized uh, perspective. Yeah. So I've got a video course on Udemy, and, and the book is available on Amazon and just about uh, every place else in the world where you can buy books. So. Man, any love? Any shouts out to people in particular? Well, you know, I have a, a very strong support network as well, and those people know who they are. They their names are in the introduction to the book, and rather than offend anyone for leaving them out, I'll just say thank you because they are instrumental in my success, and they are my separable outcome. I'm very intrinsically motivated, and I believe I have very strong control beliefs, but I'm telling you, in absence of the rest of the world, you know what you can do with those beliefs? <laughs> I would agree, They're pretty man. much meaningless without, without the support network that we all have, and and that ranges from students to partners to friends to family and stuff. So, and I, um, you, you, you'll do this again with me? Absolutely. I'd love to keep catching up with you. Man. That's a good well, show. I, I'm right down the street, right? Right. We are going to do this a lot, man. I, yeah. I love it. Uh, any, um, you know what I have found? I say it all the time. Podcast remorse is real. Sometimes you'll get off the podcast and go, "Shit, I forgot to say." And so I, I try to ramble for a second. And you know what? You're. Uh, I really like your style, and you know, I wrote to you a couple of weeks ago and said, "Do you have an agenda?" You said no. So, you know, I, I've certainly uh, feel like you're uh, you're good at extracting information. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, that, that's that's a talent. Thank it's, you. That's how you you get to to know people and find out what's going on. So, I, I don't have any uh, podcast remorse. Uh, the only thing, uh, and I, I really like to do this kind of stuff. This is. 
there are, are no politics associated with this type of conversation. So you can say what you want to say freely without worrying about repercussion. Yeah. Or and I've been I'm very frequently a, accused of being very rigorous. And one of my students last semester, I just gave her some candid feedback, and she told me I was being extremely harsh, and I hurt her feelings. And although that was a lesson for me yeah. <laughs> in refining communication, I didn't think it was appropriate. So <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is you do a really, I think, and I'm not just you know, trying to <laughs> make nice, nice, you do a really good job making people feel comfortable, which allows for freedom of expression and, and getting down to what, what's really important. Cool. So, I, that's what we try to do, man. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to build a space, you know, because I think <clears throat> environment can be a, a, an influence on in how yeah. we feel, you know, and talk. And it took me, I talk about it, man. It takes so long. I'm still not all the way there to be just so just you, you know, on camera or on the microphone. It takes a while. I, well, I you you need a radio it. show. That's what you need. Yeah. Uh, then they have to, <laughs> then they're going to tell me what I can and can't say. That, well, that's true too. Now I can yeah. say, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> and not be in trouble. <laughs> Right, except with who? With, you can't get in trouble. <laughs> Man, <laughs> no trouble. I um, <clears throat> any uh, any social media? You on Facebook, Twitter, anything? Yeah, I'm, I'm on uh, Twitter at I Found Mo. Always looking for new followers. Just uh, I love the up. I Found Mo. My daughter's name is Mo. Oh, really? Her name's Morgan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's pretty funny. Yeah, As, uh, I have a Morgan, uh, one of my uh, colleagues. And actually, she goes by the name of Mo. So <laughs> I love the Finding Mo, man. I think that's genius, man. Yeah. So everybody, go to findingmo.com and uh, check All it right. out. I'll hold you to it and do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. Thank you, Enjoy brother. Myself. Thank you, man. I, I got to tell you, uh, talking to Dr. Bobby Hoffman was fun. Uh, I got to tell you, I was nervous in the beginning. I was running around my house like a little kid, and. Uh, you know, like, all right, shit, I got, I got to talk to this guy about everything he knows. And I got, I got so into his book that it sounded like we were writing so similarly. And, you know, my, my mentor, Leo, who was on yesterday, he talks about people that are a disease and some people, you know, are K to M's, et cetera. And, you know, it, it just felt like Dr. Bobby Hoffman was another A to Z, you know, like, uh, we could just plug in, you know, with anybody at any time and, cover a lot of topics um we probably could have kept going for another two hours and i'll be excited to have him back on again you know getting into that drive of of motivation the science of it you know and um you know we talked about the book a lot you'll find it on the links where you can connect with it but i think the uh study of motivation and drive and what moves us each day is uh imperative to our lives and to our happiness and trying to close that gap like he said between um our perceived self and our optimal self. But, you know, it all stems back to what you believe and what you're willing to do and how you're willing to act on that belief. And, you know, sometimes just do something uh, to make it different. But I hope you learned something like I did. Uh, I love learning. Keep learning with us uh, again. And um, let's see, I have another podcast coming on at 4 o'clock, so stay with us. Uh, Renee McNowan um, from British Columbia, who is a CEO who took her marijuana business public and did very, very successful. Uh, and she's the only woman owned business, but she's also transgender. So she's the first of both fields and she's going to share uh, her story, how she got there, what's new on the horizon for marijuana. That's coming up at four today. But, uh, again, uh, 
I really like the doc. I'm just going to have to call him the doc. Uh, doc, uh, the doc of motivation, man. But we'll see him again. Like, uh, find him in all the places you did. I hope you enjoyed it. And like I always say, I uh, hope you're taking care of you. And I hope you're living in a cognitive rampage. Thank you.